This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Stephen Turnbull, Andre Vespetti, Whitney, Kristen Hank, Tracy Ann Young, Alexa Anfang, Sarah Huntsman, Victoria, Natalie, Sydney Van Gilder, Amanda Schuster, Leah Plum, and Jake. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for those of you who don't know, all the wonderful names that I just read are new supporters of the Sleepy Podcast on Patreon.com, 
which is a really great site where you can go on and um, support creators of the work that you like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has maybe helped you wake up more refreshed the next day or get better sleep, then maybe consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And at $5 a month, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you exclusive poetry readings twice a month just for donating. And that's for $5 patrons only. So if you'd like to be a supporter of the show and then have your name read in the opening credits of the next show after you donate, Go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski. And the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. So right now I am recording from Jean Lafitte National Park, which is uh, a bunch of swampland south of New Orleans and has been the quietest place that I could find to record in the Sleepy Mobile. Um, really gorgeous bayous to walk through saw some gators for the first time pretty wild anyways when I was back in the city and I was in one of my favorite used bookshops Dauphine Street Books I saw this wonderful copy of The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle and um, I know that the movie has just come out I haven't seen it with Robert Downey Jr., but watching the old version of the movie as a kid, I loved it. My brother and I would watch it over and over and over, partly because my mom lied to us when we were kids and said that TV didn't reach our house, which (laughs) made sense because we were way out in the woods. I figured, oh yeah, of course TV doesn't reach out here, but obviously... She just didn't want us growing up with regular programming. So we did get a PBS and anything that we can get on the antenna. Um, But then we had an amazing collection of VHS tapes that we would watch over and over and over again. And Dr. Doolittle was one of those. So I was in the bookstore. I saw this copy. It's got a really bright pink cover on it. And I figured, this is a perfect book to read right now, out in the bayous of New Orleans. So tonight, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, by Hugh Lofting. Now's the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. The first chapter. The Cobbler's Son. My name is Tommy Stubbins. Son of Jacob Stubbins the cobbler of Puddleby on the Marsh. I was nine and a half years old. At that time, Puddleby was only quite a small town. A river ran through the middle of it. 
and over this river there was a very old stone bridge called King's Bridge, which led you from the marketplace on one side to the churchyard on the other. Sailing ships came up this river from the sea and anchored near the bridge. I used to go down and watch the sailors unloading the ships upon the river wall. The sailors sang strange songs as they pulled open the ropes, and I learned these songs by heart. And I would sit on the river wall with my feet dangling over the water and sing with the men, pretending to myself that I, too, was a sailor. For I longed always to sail away with those brave ships when they turned their backs on Bottleby Church and went creeping down the river again across the wide, lonely marshes to the sea. I longed to go with them out into the world to seek my fortune in foreign lands, Africa, India, China, and Peru. When they got around the bend in the river and the water was hidden from view, you could still see their huge brown sails towering over the roofs of the town, moving onward slowly, like some gentle giants that walked among the houses without noise. What strange things would they have seen, I wondered, when next they came back to anchor at Kingsbridge. And dreaming of the lands I had never seen, I'd sit on there, watching, till they were out of sight. Three great friends I had in Puddleby in those days. One was Joe, the muscle man, who lived in a tiny hut by the edge of the water under the bridge. This old man was simply marvelous at making things. I never saw a man so clever with his hands. He used to mend my toy ships for me, which I sailed upon the river. He built windmills out of packing cases and barrel stays, and he could make the most wonderful kites from old umbrellas. Joe would sometimes take me in his muscle bow, and when the tide was running out, we would paddle down the river as far as the edge of the sea to get mussels and lobsters to sell. And out there, on the cold, lonely marshes, we would see wild geese flying, and curlews, and redshanks, and many other kinds of seabirds that live along the samphire and the long grass of the great salt fen. And as we crept up the river, in the evening when the tide had turned, we would see the lights on Kingsbridge twinkle in the dusk, reminding us of tea time and warm fires. Another friend I had was Matthew Mugg, the cat's meat man. He was a funny old person with a bad squint. He looked rather awful, but he was really quite nice to talk to. He knew everybody in Puddleby, and he knew all the dogs and all the cats. In those times, being a cat's meat man was regular business, and you could see one nearly any day going through the streets with a wooden tray full of pieces of meat, stuck on skewers crying, Meat, M-E-A-T. People paid him to give this meat to their cats and dogs instead of feeding them on dog biscuits or the scraps from the table. I enjoyed going around with old Matthew and seeing the cats and dogs come running to the garden gates whenever they heard his call. 
Sometimes he let me give the meat to the animals myself, and I thought this was great fun. He knew a lot about dogs, and he would tell me the names of different kinds as we went through the town. He had several dogs of his own. One, a whippet, a very fast runner, and Matthew used to win prizes with her at the Saturday coursing races. Another, a terrier, was a fine ratter. The cat's meat man used to make a business of rat catching for the millers and farmers, as well as his other trade of selling cat's meat. My third great friend was Luke the Hermit, but of him I will tell you more later on. I did not go to school, because my father was not rich enough to send me, but I was extremely fond of animals. So I used to spend my time collecting birds' eggs and butterflies, fishing in the river, rambling through the countryside after blackberries and mushrooms, and helping the muscle man mend his nets. Yes, it was a very pleasant life I lived in those days long ago, though of course I did not think so then. I was nine and a half years old, and like all boys, I wanted to grow up, not knowing how well off I was with no cares and nothing to worry me. Always I longed for the time when I should be allowed to leave my father's house, to take passage in one of those brave ships to sail down the river through the misty marshes to the sea, out into the world to seek my fortune. The second chapter, I hear of the great naturalist. One early morning in the springtime, when I was wandering among the hills at the back of the town, I happened to come upon a hawk with a squirrel in its claws. It was standing on a rock, and the squirrel was fighting very hard for its life. The hawk was so frightened when I came upon it suddenly like this that it dropped the poor creature and flew away. I picked the squirrel up and found that two of its legs were badly hurt, so I carried it in my arms back to the town. When I came to the bridge, I went into the muscle man's hut and asked him if he could do anything for it. Joe put on his spectacles and examined it carefully. Then he shook his head. The old critter's got a broken leg, he said, and another badly cut and all. I can mend you your boats, Tom, but I haven't the tools nor the learning to make a broken squirrel seaworthy. This is a job for a surgeon, and for a right smart one and all. There'd be only one man I know who could save yon critter's life, and that's John Doolittle. Who is John Doolittle, I asked. Is he a vet? No, said the muscle man. He's no vet. Dr. Doolittle is a naturalist. What's a naturalist? A naturalist, said Joe, putting away his glasses and starting to fill his pipe, is a man who knows all about animals and butterflies and plants and rocks and all. John Doolittle is a very great naturalist. I'm surprised you never heard of him. And you daft over animals. He knows a whole lot about shellfish. That I know from my own knowledge. 
He's a quiet man and don't talk much. But there's folks who do say he's the greatest naturalist in the world. Where does he live? I asked. Over on the Oxenthorpe Road, the other side of town. Don't know just which house it is, but most anyone crossed there could tell you, I reckon. Go and see him. He's a great man. So I thanked the muscle man, took up my squirrel again, and started off toward the Oxenthorpe Road. The first thing I heard as I came to the marketplace was someone calling Meat, M-E-A-T. There's Matthew Mug, I said to myself. He'll know where this doctor lives. Matthew knows everyone. So I hurried across the marketplace and caught up with him. Matthew, I said, do you know Dr. Doolittle? Do I know John Doolittle, said he. Well, I should think I do. I know him as well as I know my own wife. Better, I sometimes think. He's a great man, a very great man. Can you show me where he lives? I asked. I want to take this squirrel to him. It has a broken leg. Certainly, said the cat's meat man. I'll be going right by his house directly. Come along and I'll show you. So off we went together. Oh, I've known John Doolittle for years and years, said Matthew, as we made our way out of the marketplace. But I'm pretty sure he ain't home just now. He's away on voyage, but he's liable to be back any day. I'll show you his house, and then you'll know where to find him. All the way down Oxenthorpe Road, Matthew hardly stopped talking about his great friend, Dr. John Doolittle, M.D. He talked so much that he forgot all about calling out meat, until we both suddenly noticed that we had a whole procession of dogs following us patiently. Where did the doctor go on this voyage? I asked as Matthew handed around the meat to them. I couldn't tell you, he answered. Nobody ever knows where he goes, nor when he's going, nor when he's coming back. He lives all alone except for his pets. He's made some great voyages and some wonderful discoveries. Last time he came back, he told me he'd found a tribe of Indians in the Pacific Ocean. Lived on two islands, they did. The husbands lived on one island, and the wives lived on the other. Sensible people, some of them Indians. They met only once a year, when the husbands came over to visit the wives for a great feast. Christmas time, most likely. Yes, he's a wonderful man, is the doctor. And as for animals, well, there ain't no one knows as much about him as he does. How did he get to know so much about animals, I asked. The cat's meat man stopped and leaned down to whisper in my ear. He talks their language, he said in a hoarse, mysterious voice. The animal's language, I cried. Why, certainly, said Matthew. All animals have some kind of language. Some sorts talk more than others. Some speak only in sign language. But the doctor... He understands them all, birds as well as animals. We keep it a secret, though, 
him and me, because folks only laugh at you when you speak of it. Why, he can even write in a language. He reads aloud to his pets. He's wrote history books in monkey talk, poetry in canary language, and comic songs for magpies to sing. It's a fact. He's now busy learning the language of shellfish. But he says it's hard work, and he has caught some terrible colds holding his head under water so much. He's a great man. He certainly must be, I said. I do wish you were home so I could meet him. Well, there's his house, said the cat's meat man. Look, that little one, at the bend in the road there. The one high up, like it was sitting on the wall above the street. We were now come beyond the edge of the town. And the house that Matthew pointed out was quite a small one, standing by itself. There seemed to be a big garden around it. And this garden was much higher than the road. So you had to go up a flight of steps in the wall before you reached the front gate at the top. I could see that there were many fine fruit trees in the garden. But their branches hung down over the wall in places. But the wall was so high, I could not see anything else. When we reached the house, Matthew went up the steps to the front gate, and I followed him. I thought he was going to go into the garden, but the gate was locked. A dog came running down from the house, and he took several pieces of meat, which the cat's meat man pushed through the bars of the gate, and some paper bags full of corn and bran. I noticed that this dog did not stop to eat the meat, as any ordinary dog would have done, but he took all the things back to the house and disappeared. He had a curious wide collar around his neck that looked as though it were made of brass or something. Then we came away. The doctor isn't back yet, said Matthew, or the gate wouldn't be locked. What were all those things in paper bags you gave the dog, I asked. Oh, those are provisions, said Matthew. Things for the animals to eat. The doctor's house is simply full of pets. I give the things to the dog while the doctor's away, and the dog gives them to the other animals. And what was that curious collar he was wearing around his neck? That's a solid gold dog collar said Matthew. It was given to him when he was with the doctor on one of his voyages long ago. He saved a man's life. How long has the doctor had him? I asked. Oh, a long time. Jip's getting pretty old now. That's why the doctor doesn't take him on his voyages anymore. He leaves him behind to take care of the house. Every Monday and Thursday, I bring the food to the gate here and give it to him through the bars. He never lets anyone come inside the garden while the doctor's away. Not even me, though he knows me well. But you'll always be able to tell if the doctor's back or not, because if he is, the gate will surely be open. So I went off home to my father's house and put my squirrel to bed in an old wooden box full of straw. And there I nursed him myself, and took care of him as best I could till the time should come when the doctor would return. And every day 
I went to the little house with the big garden on the edge of the town and tried the gate to see if it was locked. Sometimes the dog, Jeff, would come down to the gate to meet me. But though he always wagged his tail and seemed glad to see me, he never let me come inside the garden. The third chapter, The Doctor's Home. One Monday afternoon, toward the end of April, my father asked me to take some clothes that he had mended to a house on the other side of town. They were for a Colonel Bellows, who was very particular. I found the house and rang the bell at the front door. The colonel opened it, stuck out a very red face, and said, Go around to the tradesman's entrance. Go to the back door. Then he slammed the door shut. I felt inclined to throw the shoes into the middle of his flower bed. But I thought my father might be angry. So I didn't. I went around to the back door. And there the colonel's wife met me and took the shoes from me. She seemed to be terribly afraid of her husband whom I could still hear stumping around the house somewhere, grunting indignantly because I had come to the front door. Then she asked me in a whisper if I would have a bun and a glass of milk, and I said, yes, please. After I had eaten the bun and milk and thanked the colonel's wife, I thought that I would see if the doctor had come back yet. My squirrel wasn't getting any better, and I was beginning to be worried about him. So I started off toward the doctor's house. On the way, I noticed that the sky was clouding over and that it looked as though it might rain. I reached the gate and found it locked. I felt very discouraged. I've been coming here every day for a week now. The dog, Jim came to the gate and wagged his tail as usual and then sat down and watched me closely to see that I didn't get in. I began to fear that my squirrel would die before the doctor came back. I turned away sadly, went down the steps to the road and turned toward home again. I wondered if it was supper time yet. Of course, I had no watch of my own, but I noticed a gentleman coming toward me down the road. And when he got near, I saw it was the colonel, out for a walk. He was all wrapped up in smart overcoats and muffers and bright-colored gloves. It was not a very cold day, but he had so many clothes on, he looked like a pillow inside of a roll of blankets. I asked him if he would please tell me the time. He stopped, grunted, and glared down at me, his red face growing redder still. And when he spoke, it sounded like the cork coming out of a ginger beer bottle. Do you imagine for one moment, he spluttered, that I am going to get myself all unbuttoned just to tell a little boy like you the time? And he went stumping down the street, grunting harder than ever. I stood still a moment, looking after him, and wondering how old I would have to be to have him go to the trouble of getting his watch out. And then, 
all of a sudden, the rain came down in torrents. I have never seen it rain so hard. It got dark, almost like night. The wind began to blow, the thunder rolled, the lightning flashed, and in a moment the gutters of the road were flowing like a river. There was no place handy to take shelter, so I put my head down against the driving wind and started to run toward home. I hadn't gone very far when my head bumped into something soft, and I sat down suddenly on the pavement. I looked up to see whom I had run into, and there in front of me, sitting on the wet pavement like myself, was a little round man with a very kind face. He wore a shabby high hat, and in his hand he had a small black bag. I'm very sorry, I said. I had my head down and I didn't see you coming. To my great surprise, instead of getting angry at being knocked down, the little man began to laugh. It was just as much my fault as it was yours, you know, said the little man. I had my head down too. But look here, we mustn't sit talking like this. You must be soaked. I know I am. How far have you got to go? My home is on the other side of town, I said as we picked ourselves up. My goodness, but that was a wet pavement, said he. And I declare it's coming down worse than ever. Come along to my house and get dried. A storm like this can't last. He took hold of my hand and we started running back down the road together. As we ran I began to wonder who this funny little man could be and where he lived. I was a perfect stranger to him. And yet he was taking me to his home to get dried. Such a change after the old red-faced colonel who had refused even to tell me the time. Presently, we stopped. Here we are, he said. I looked up to see where we were and found myself back at the foot of the steps leading to the little house with the big garden. My new friend was already running up the steps and opening the gate with some keys he took from his pocket. Surely, I thought, this cannot be the great Dr. Doolittle himself. I suppose after hearing so much about him, I had expected someone very tall and strong and marvelous. It was hard to believe that this funny little man with the kind, smiling face could really be he. Yet here he was, opening the very gate which I had been watching for so many days. The dog, Jip came rushing out and started jumping on him and barking with happiness. The rain was splashing down, heavier than ever. Are you Dr. Doolittle? I shouted as we sped up the short garden path to the house. Yes, I'm Dr. Doolittle, said he, opening the front door with the same bunch of keys. Get in. Don't bother about wiping your feet. Never mind the mud. Take it in with you. Get in out of the rain. I popped in, he and Jip following. Then he slammed the door behind us. The storm had made it dark enough outside 
but inside the house, with the door closed, it was as black as night. Then began the most extraordinary noise that I have ever heard. It sounded like all sorts and kinds of animals and birds calling and squeaking and screeching at the same time. I could hear things trundling down the stairs and hurrying along passages. Somewhere in the dark a duck was quacking, a cock was crowing, a dove was cooing, an owl was hooting, a lamb was bleeding, and Jip was barking. I felt birds' wings fluttering and fanning near my face. Things kept bumping into my legs and nearly upsetting me. The whole front hall seemed to be filling with animals. The noise, together with the roaring of the rain, was tremendous, and I was beginning to grow a little bit scared when I felt the doctor take hold of my arm and shout into my ear. Don't be alarmed. Don't be frightened. These are just some of my pets. I've been away three months, and they are glad to see me home again. Stand still where you are till I strike a light. My gracious, what a storm. Just listen to that thunder. So there I stood in the pitch black dark with all kinds of animals that I couldn't see chattered and jostled around me. It all seemed like some queer dream and I was beginning to wonder if I was really awake when I heard the doctor speaking again. My blessed matches are all wet. They won't strike. Have you got any? No, I'm afraid I haven't. I called back. Never mind, said he. Perhaps Dab Dab can raise us a light somewhere. Then the doctor made some funny clicking noises with his tongue, and I heard someone trundle up the stairs again and start moving about in rooms above. Then we waited quite a while without anything happening. Will the light be long in coming? I asked. Some animal is sitting on my foot, and my toes are going to sleep. No, only a minute, said the doctor. She'll be back in a minute. And just then I saw the first glimmerings of a light around the landing above. At once all the animals kept quiet. I thought you lived alone, I said to the doctor. So I do, said he. It is Dab Dab who is bringing the light. I looked up the stairs, trying to make out who was coming. I could not see around the landing, but I heard the most curious footstep on the upper flight. It sounded like someone hopping down from one step to the other, as though he were using only one leg. As the light came lower, it grew brighter and began to throw strange jumping shadows on the walls. Ah, at last, said the doctor. Good old Dab Dab. And then I thought, I really must be dreaming. For there, craning her neck around the bend of the landing, hopping down the stairs on one leg, came a spotless white duck. And at her right foot, she carried a lighted candle. The fourth chapter. The Wiff-Waff. When at last I could look around me, I found that the hall was indeed simply full of animals. 
It seemed to me that almost every kind of creature from the countryside must be there. A pigeon, a white rat, an owl, a badger, a jackdaw. There was even a small pig, just in from the rainy garden, carefully wiping his feet on the mat while the light from the candle glistened on his wet pink back. The doctor took the candlestick from the duck and turned to me. Look here, he said. You must get those wet clothes off. By the way, what is your name? Tommy Stubbins, I said. Oh, you are the son of Jacob Stubbins, the shoemaker. Yes, I said. Excellent bootmaker, your father, said the doctor. You see these? And he held up his right foot to show me the enormous boots he was wearing. Your father made me those boots four years ago, and I've been wearing them ever since. Perfectly wonderful boots. Well now, look here, Stubbins. You've got to change those wet things, and quick. Wait a moment, till I get some more candles lit, and then we'll go upstairs and find some dry clothes. You'll have to wear an old suit of mine till we can get yours dry again by the kitchen fire. So presently, when more candles had been lighted around different parts of the house, we went upstairs, and when we had come into the bedroom, the doctor opened a big wardrobe and took out two suits of old clothes. These we put on. Then we carried our wet ones down to the kitchen and started a fire in the big chimney. The coat of the doctor's that I was wearing was so large for me that I kept treading on my own coattails while I was helping to fetch the wood up from the cellar. But very soon, we had a huge, big fire blazing up the chimney, and we hung our wet clothes around on chairs. Now let's cook some supper, said the doctor. You'll stay and have supper with me, Stubbins, of course. Already I was beginning to be very fond of this funny little man who called me Stubbins instead of Tommy, or Little Lad. I did so hate to be called Little Lad. This man seemed to begin right away treating me as though I were a grown-up friend of his, and when he asked me to stop and have supper with him, I felt terribly proud and happy. But I suddenly remember that I had not told my mother that I would be out so late. So very sadly I answered, Thank you very much. I would like to stay, but I'm afraid that my mother will begin to worry and wonder where I am if I don't get back. Oh, but my dear Stubbins, said the doctor, throwing another log of wood on the fire. Your clothes aren't dry yet. You'll have to wait for them, won't you? By the time they are ready to put on, we will have supper cooked and eaten. Did you see where I put my bag? I think it is still in the hall, I said. I'll go and see. I found the bag near the front door. It was made of black leather and looked very, very old. One of its latches was broken, and it was tied up around the middle with a piece of string. Thank you said the doctor when I brought it to him. Was that bag all the luggage you had for your voyage? I asked. Yes, said the doctor, as he undid the piece of string 
I don't believe in a lot of baggage. It's such a nuisance. Life's too short to fuss with it. And it isn't really necessary, you know. Where did I put those sausages? The doctor was feeling about inside the bag. First he brought out a loaf of new bread. Next came a glass jar with a curious metal top to it. He held this up to the light very carefully before he set it down upon the table and I could see that there was some strange little water creature swimming about inside. At last the doctor brought out a pound of sausages. Now, he said, all we want is a frying pan. We went into the scullery, and there we found some pots and pans hanging against the wall. The doctor took down the frying pan. While the doctor was busy cooking, I went and took another look at the funny little creature swimming about in the glass jar. What is this animal? I asked. Oh, that, said the doctor, turning around. That's a whiff-whaff. Its full name is Hippocampus pipitopitus, but the natives just call it a whiff-whaff, on account of the way it waves its tail swimming, I imagine. That's what I went on this last voyage for, to get that. You see, I'm very busy just now trying to learn the language of the shellfish. They have language, of that I feel sure. I can talk a little shark language and porpoise dialect myself. But what I particularly want to learn now is shellfish. Why, I asked. Well, you see, some of the shellfish are the oldest kind of animals in the world that we know of. We find their shells in rocks, turned to stone, thousands of years old. So I feel quite sure that if I could only get to talk their language... I should be able to learn a whole lot about what the world was like ages ago, you see. But couldn't some of the other animals tell you as well? I don't think so, said the doctor, prodding the sausages with a fork. To be sure, the monkeys I know in Africa some time ago were very helpful in telling me about bygone days. But they only went back about a thousand years or so. No. I am certain that the oldest history in the world is to be had from the shellfish and from them only. You see, most of the other animals that were alive in those very ancient times have now become extinct. Have you learned any shellfish language yet? I asked. No, I have only just begun. I wanted this particular kind of pipefish because he is half shellfish and half ordinary fish. I went all the way to the eastern Mediterranean after him. But I'm very much afraid he isn't going to be a great deal of help to me. To tell you the truth, I'm rather disappointed in his appearance. He doesn't look very intelligent, does he? No, he doesn't, I agreed. Ah, said the doctor. The sausages are done to a turn. Come along. Hold your plate near and let me give you some. Then we sat down at the kitchen table and started a hearty meal. It was a wonderful kitchen, that. 
I had many meals there afterward and found it a better place to eat than the grandest dining room in the world. It was so cozy and homelike and warm. It was so handy for the food, too. He took it right off the fire, hot, and put it on the table and ate it. And you could watch your toast toasting at the fender and see it didn't burn while you drank your soup. And if you had forgotten to put the salt on the table, you didn't have to get up to go into another room to fetch it. He just reached around and took the big wooden box off the dresser behind you. Then the fireplace. The biggest fireplace you ever saw was like a room in itself. You could get right inside it, even when the logs were burning, and sit on the wide seats at either side and roast chestnuts after the meal was over, or listen to the kettle singing, or tell stories or look at picture books by the light of the fire. It was a marvelous kitchen. It was like the doctor. Comfortable, sensible, friendly, and solid. While we were gobbling away, the door suddenly opened, and in marched the duck, Dab-Dab, and the dog, Jip, dragging sheets and pillowcases behind them over the clean, tiled floor. The doctor, seeing how surprised I was, explained, they're just going to air the bedding for me in front of the fire. Dab-Dab is a perfect treasure of a housekeeper. She never forgets anything. I had a sister once who used to keep the house for me. Poor, dear Sarah. I wonder how she's getting on. I haven't seen her in many years. But she wasn't nearly as good as Dab-Dab. Have another sausage? The doctor turned and said a few words to the dog and the duck in some strange talk and sign. They seemed to understand him perfectly. Can you talk in squirrel language? I asked. Oh yes, that's quite an easy language, said the doctor. You could learn that yourself without a great deal of trouble. But why do you ask? Because I have a sick squirrel at home. I said, I took it away from a hawk, but two of its legs are badly hurt, and I wanted very much to have you see it, if you would. Shall I bring it tomorrow? Well, if its leg is badly broken, I think I'd better see it tonight. It may be too late to do much, but I'll come home with you and take a look at it. So presently we felt the clothes by the fire, and mine were found to be quite dry. I took them upstairs to the bedroom and changed, and when I came down the doctor was already waiting for me with his little black bag full of medicines and bandages. Come along, he said. The rain has stopped now. Outside it had grown bright again, and the evening sky was all red with the setting sun, and thrushes were singing in the garden as we opened the gate to go down onto the road. The fifth chapter, Polynesia. I think your house is the most interesting house I was ever in, I said as we set off in the direction of the town. May I come and see you again tomorrow? Certainly, said the doctor. Come any day you like. Tomorrow I'll show you the garden 
in my private zoo. Oh, you have a zoo? I asked. Yes, said he. The larger animals are too big for the house, so I keep them in a zoo in the garden. It is not a very big collection, but it is interesting in its way. It must be splendid, I said, to be able to talk all the languages of the different animals. Do you think I could ever learn to do it? Oh, surely, said the doctor, with practice. You have to be very patient, you know. You really ought to have Polynesia to start you. It was she who gave me my first lessons. Who is Polynesia, I asked. Polynesia was a West African parrot I had. She isn't with me anymore now, said the doctor sadly. Why, is she dead? Oh no, said the doctor. She's still living, I hope. But when we reached Africa, she seemed so glad to get back to her own country. She wept for joy. And when the time came for me to come back here, I had not the heart to take her away from that sunny land. Although it is true, she did offer to come. I left her in Africa. Oh, well, I have missed her terribly. She wept again when we left. But I think I did the right thing. She was one of the best friends I ever had. It was she who first gave me the idea of learning the animal languages and becoming an animal doctor. I often wonder if she remained happy in Africa and whether I shall ever see her funny old solemn face again. Good old Polynesia. A most extraordinary bird. Well, well. Just at that moment, we heard the noise of someone running behind us and turning around we saw Jip, the dog, rushing down the road after us as fast as his legs could bring him. He seemed very excited about something, and as soon as he came up to us, he started barking and whining to the doctor in a peculiar way. Then the doctor, too, seemed to get all worked up and began talking and making queer signs to the dog. At length, he turned to me, his face shining with happiness. Polynesia has come back, he cried. Imagine it. Jip says she has just arrived at the house. My, and it's five years since I saw her. Excuse me a minute. He turned as if to go back home, but the parrot, Polynesia, was already flying toward us. The doctor clapped his hands like a child getting a new toy, while the swarm of sparrows in the roadway fluttered, gossiping up onto the fences, highly scandalized to see a gray and scarlet parrot skimming down an English lane. On she came, straight onto the doctor's shoulders, where she immediately began talking a steady stream in a language I could not understand. She seemed to have a terrible lot to say, and very soon the doctor had forgotten all about me and my squirrel and Jip and everything else, till at length the bird clearly asked him something about me. Oh, excuse me, Stubbins, said the doctor. I was so interested, listening to my old friend here. We must get on and see this squirrel of yours. Polynesia, this is Thomas Stubbins. The parrot, 
on the doctor's shoulders, nodded gravely toward me, and then, to my great surprise, said quite plainly in English, How do you do? I remember the night you were born. It was a terribly cold winter. You were a very ugly baby. Stubbins is anxious to learn animal language, said the doctor. I was just telling him about you and the lessons you gave me when Jip ran up and told us you would arrive. Well, said the parrot, turning to me, I may have started the doctor learning, but I never could have done even that if he didn't first taught me to understand what I was saying when I spoke English. You see, many parrots can talk like a person, but very few of them understand what they are saying. They say it because, well, because they fancy it as smart, or because they know they will get crackers given to them. By this time we had turned and were going toward my home, with Jip running in front and Polynesia still perched on the doctor's shoulder. The bird chattered incessantly, mostly about Africa, but now she spoke in English out of politeness to me. How is Prince Bumpo getting on? asked the doctor. Oh, I'm glad you asked me, said Polynesia. I almost forgot to tell you. What do you think? Bumpo is in England. In England? You don't say, cried the doctor. What on earth is he doing here? His father, the king, sent him here to a place called, er, Bulford, I think it was, to study lessons. Bulford. Bulford, muttered the doctor. I never heard of the place. Oh, you mean Oxford. Yes, that's the place. Oxford, said Polynesia. I knew it had cattle in it somewhere. Oxford, that's the place he's gone to. Well, well, murmured the doctor. Fancy Bumpo studying at Oxford. Well, well. There were great things in Jolly Kinky when he left. He was scared to death to come. He was the first man from that country to go abroad. But his father made him come. He said that all the African kings were sending their sons to Oxford now. It was the fashion, and he would have to go. Poor Bumpo went off in tears, and everybody in the palace was crying too. He never heard such a hullabaloo. And how is Chi-Chi getting on? Chi-Chi, added the doctor in explanation to me, was a pet monkey I had years ago. I left him too, in Africa, when I came away. Well, said Polynesia, frowning, Chi-Chi is not entirely happy. I saw a good deal of him the last few years. He got dreadfully homesick for you, and the house, and the garden. It's funny, but I was just the same way myself. I just couldn't seem to settle down. Well, one night I made up my mind that I'd come back here and find you. So I hunted up old Chi-Chi and told him about it. He said he didn't blame me a bit. Felt exactly the same way himself. Africa was so deadly quiet after the life we led with you. He missed the stories he used to tell us and the chats we used to have sitting around the kitchen fire winter nights the animals out there were very nice to us and all that 
but somehow the dear, kind creatures seemed a bit stupid. Chi-Chi said he noticed it too. But I suppose it wasn't they who had changed. It was we who were different. When I left, poor old Chi-Chi broke down and cried. He said he felt as though his only friend were leaving him. Though, as you know, he has simply millions of relatives there. He said it didn't seem fair that I should have wings to fly over here any time I liked, and him with no way to follow me. But mark my words, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he found a way to come someday. He's a smart lad, that Chi-Chi. At this point, we arrived at my home. My father's shop was closed and the shutters were up, but my mother was standing at the door, looking down the street. Good evening, Mrs. Stubbins, said the doctor. It is my fault your son is so late. I made a mistake to supper while his clothes were drying. He was soaked to the skin and so was I. We ran into one another in the storm and I insisted on his coming into my house for shelter. I was beginning to get worried about him, said my mother. I am thankful to you, sir, for looking after him so well and bringing him home. Don't mention it, don't mention it, said the doctor. We have had a very interesting chat. Who might it be that I have the honor of addressing, asked my mother, staring at the gray parrot perched on the doctor's shoulder. Oh, I am John Doolittle. I dare say your husband will remember me. He made me some very excellent boots about four years ago. They really are splendid, added the doctor, gazing down at his feet with great satisfaction. The doctor has come to cure my squirrel, mother, said I. He knows all about animals. Oh no, said the doctor. Not all, Stubbins. Not all about them by any means. It is very kind of you to come so far to look after his pet, said my mother. Tom is always bringing home strange creatures from the woods and the fields. Is he, said the doctor. Perhaps he will grow up to be a naturalist someday. Who knows? Won't you come in, asked my mother. The place is a little untidy because I haven't finished the spring cleaning yet, but there's a nice fire burning in the parlor. Thank you, said the doctor. What a charming home you have. And after wiping his enormous boots very, very carefully on the mat, the great man passed into the house. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.